Hello, everyone. My name is Joshua Gilliland, one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks. With me tonight, or today, depending on when you're listening, is Gabby Martin, <laughs> Thomas Harper, and Nari Ely. We're all lawyers. We all do our part to- We hope we're lawyers. Yes. <laughs> Last I checked. <laughs> I'm like grief. I'm a disgraced magistrate, so I'm just happy to be here. And we've all had a rough weekend, I think. So we're, we're here to talk about The Mandalorian and the episode entitled The Siege, which was a lot of fun. And this is just me opining, but you it felt like uh, Carl Weathers who directed it. And I, I didn't catch who wrote it, if it was Favreau or, or Filoni, but it you can sense what toys they played with, that they had yes. the Death Star play set, <laughs> they had a TIE fighter, they had the troop transport, and they loved those toys. And now they wrote stories with them and it was glorious because it spoke to the four-year-old in me who, <laughs> who loved the original movie. And there was just that vibe to it of like, we're going to go use the playset that we've always wanted to use. So let's use an imperial base. This is and like the classic, uh, like when I was a kid, you you set up the the bad guy base on the couch or way up on the kitchen counter, and the good guys roll in on the ground. A lot of logistical challenges you got to throw at your heroes. <laughs> it was good. And Horatio Sands actually had a real role after being frozen in carbonite. Yeah. Yep. Just- I love that his. <laughs> He said his left, he still couldn't see out of his left eye. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I, I just, I pointed out for my boyfriend, James, that it just little details that show how much they yeah, know the lore. Exactly. Um, because I believe it was in Clone Wars, was it? That they tried to sneak into a base by freezing themselves in carbonite. And there was like, at least one of them had a side effect of, of blindness. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, it's a callback to the original when Han gets defrosted or demelted or whatever you want to call it from the carbonite he can't see initially so it's a side effect big kind of dark blur side to a big light blur in, yeah <laughs> by someone who loves you i yeah. my favorite part about the the few days since the episode has been seeing the positive feedback and watching carl weathers like see it and react to it on twitter and then the the absolute best part was there's a shot uh, during the siege on the base where you know the editors missed like a crew member or something like that that's just standing there in jeans oh, and, no! uh, you blink I you'll miss it. it i'm gonna have to rewatch. <laughs> yeah you, you'll miss it but they you know the screenshot was all over people are like oh this is like game of thrones 2.0 and you know he could have taken that a number of ways, but he retweeted it or quote tweeted it and went just bogey or the, like that's a bogey. <laughs> so and I love that the Star Wars fandom just went, you know, immediately reacted and made that man part of the lore. Yes, so there's a part of there's a five hundred first CRL for it now. Yeah. <laughs> oh my <laughs> this. he is canon. He is not a mistake. Like the Game of Thrones <laughs> coffee cup. He is canon. Oh, and he beautiful. is part of the lore. So <laughs> well true. done, Star Wars fandom. Well done. You have my utmost respect. <laughs> I want Admiral my six-inch Black Pete Series figure of him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should, there should be a petition 
People should start petitioning Hasbro right now for Blue Jeans Guy. They don't even <laughs> need to make a full action figure, just half. Exactly. You don't even have to include a head. Yeah. It's cheap and it'll I, sell. I'm, I'm seeing the concept <laughs> art you sent for the product. I, I approve. It's perfect. Because <laughs> you, could, you could phrase it like, he's all of us. You know, <laughs> we just want to be there. <laughs> You know, I, I like to think my canonical explanation for it was that's like one of the troopers that's on off duty that day and he's just <laughs> on his way to the dining facility and all this stuff pops off and he's just waiting for this this all to pass so he can go get his breakfast. <laughs> Not my job. This is my day off. I mean, you guys I, handle it. I have said from the minute they did the SNL sketch of undercover Starkiller base that there needs to be <laughs> Just like an office type <laughs> comedy of yes. Star Wars, of yes. the low grunts on in the Empire and their to toxic and hostile work environment and just their day-to-day -day life. I would watch that. I'm all in. Hands down. They, yeah, I mean, with, and with Disney Plus, they could do something like that. Mm -hmm. For, uh, you know, maybe for, you know, next Christmas, why don't we just do that as a holiday special? <laughs> Because people will be throwing popcorn at the screen and screaming in joy with, with something of that magnitude. I just want to add to that that one of the recurring characters has to be a health and safety inspector who's constantly pointing out the lack of guardrails. Yes. <laughs> and the fact that that was, that's, I think, the first character to say, like, there's no guardrails here was. <laughs> <laughs> And I appreciate, though, that, like, they continue to do it at this point. If they started adding in guardrails to Imperial bases and, and, and stations, it would just be completely inconsistent. Yeah. <laughs> it's more menacing without the guardrails. <laughs> Look, we'll yeah. spend trillions of credits on these facilities, but we're not going to spend that extra money. <laughs> we're going to spare some expense. I, I, I just want there to be like a path a throwaway line where somebody says yeah we used to have one like like an osha type facility but that got yeah that got lost that <laughs> never got rebuilt like you just see a smoking office moff yeah. gideon told us oh, yes, moff exactly. gideon told us to remove the guardrail <laughs> <laughs> it builds character he made me throw it into the lava <laughs> What is this? Guardrails are for, for losers. <laughs> you saw that off immediately, and I want to watch you throw it down that chasm. Yeah. <laughs> who, who did this? I want to know. <laughs> uh, who tried to make this environment safe? What's wrong with you? Real soldiers off. take unnecessary risks, damn it. <laughs> That's right. You guys with zero peripheral vision, you're going to be operating this and you're going to like it. <laughs> That's actually a good segue because speaking of endangerment, like needless endangerment, <laughs> the show kicks off or the episode kicks off with probably my one of my favorite scenes, I think, in the show so far. Baby Yoda uh, in this little compartment attempting to take some directions and fix. It's like every... Every IT call, like every call that I've ever been on with my parents to try to talk them through some computer issue. And, uh, you know, it ends up the same way with them electrocuted and me asking if they're okay. <laughs> I, I want to highlight he was very paternal. 
because yes. they they <laughs> ratchet up the paternalness to like a hundred in this episode because this reminded me of my childhood because my dad was a gearhead always working on cars you know or or sea scouts you know that you're teaching kids how engines work and to take things apart or go climb behind the fire pump in positions that would make Gumby scream. And, and like, it's, it's what you do. It's, it's character building, it's fun. And, and seeing him try talking through, okay, put the blue one where the red one was and the red one where the blue one was and the look <laughs> on the child's face as he's trying to but don't let them put them together keep them separate yeah <laughs> um i want to add to that also because i mentioned this in the episode or two prior that i also found this to be again you know really really trying to i think get home the fact that baby yoda is actually a toddler <laughs> like mm -hmm. he's not just a small being who has difficulty communicating but is quite wise beyond his appearance um he really is a kid so like when he's like show me the red one he's like ah <laughs> like, that is an actual child and not being able to keep all these things in his mind like okay the red one and the blue one so you want them together <laughs> like yeah that was perfect the other one was the fact that mando not being an idiot did not really expect it to work and ends the scene with, well, it was worth a try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it, and like legally speaking, it brings up an interesting question. Like he's, Baby Yoda is not exactly like a deckhand for lack of a better term or a, a standard crew member on this ship. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, you're not able to press a toddler into service. Uh <laughs> <laughs> even a, you know you're not going to go to the grocery store and see a five-year-old bagging groceries there but the parental relationship sort of adds a wrinkle mm -hmm. to that I don't know if anybody wants to take that up yeah and so under the Fair Labor Standards Act you can kind of that's that's one carve out to this traditional um, rule of Fair, Fair Labor Standards Act which sets the working age at 14 if you're working for your parents like that's an exception or a parent or a guardian um, there, the, the department of the U S department of labor is like, we can't really prohibit that unless your, your parent is forcing you to do something dangerous like mining. So it would be a question of whether this kind of electrical work would be considered dangerous. And considering the fact that he's a toddler, he doesn't seem to know the instructions he's being given. And there's obviously the poss high possibility of electrocution, I would consider it hazardous. I've at least considered putting my toddler to work on uh, <laughs> limited space electrical problems in the house. I, we're not quite there yet, but maybe next year when she turns three, we'll be there. A couple things as Mando's defense lawyer. Um, the first one is that Baby Yoda <laughs> did in fact get electrocuted and was fine. He just coughed. The second one is that although technically we would consider Baby Yoda to be a toddler, I believe he is like, what, 50 years old? Mm -hmm. So at least under the FLSA standards, uh, yes. he would qualify for all types of employment. <laughs> and I, that, that's an interesting rabbit hole that we don't need to dive down, but does, uh, does the New Republic or did the Republic you know, pre-Empire have a sliding scale of laws like that? So if, you know, an, any law that has an age requirement 
uh, does it slide or is it is it built to account for different species? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a lot of diversity as a human species, but one thing we generally have in common is age of maturation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it would be different if we were saying like, you know, our laws also apply to like dogs. So, you know, is one baby Yoda year like only, I don't know, eight, 10 years of ours, maybe more because he's 50, but he's acting like a two-year-old. So this is one of those horrendous statutes with a, uh, like an equation built into it (laughs) that you just want to skip over. Like the tax code. (laughs) Complex uh, uh, civil procedure and figuring out when initial disclosures are due and, you know, it's like, When's the first uh, 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 conference take place? Okay, no, back. When were they served? Yeah, like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to highlight just on the paternal side of it's like kids work. Kids work on farms. Mm-hmm. Like if you've had a family business, you know, kids go to work, and they're just that just seemed very pure dad to me. Yeah. yeah. And not that I would make a kid do electrical work but it's like hey you can fit in there go find you see if you could switch that around like i could, no, I could totally it was so charming show me the red one show me the blue one he was teaching yeah. him colors yeah, yeah. Well, he goes from that and then he's like don't put them together they're positive or they're they're similarly charged they're opposite, like he's opposite like he's gonna get uh get that if he didn't yeah. get the colors yeah <laughs> and and as, as Nari's co-counsel, I would say that he is supervising this entire operation. That's it's true. not like he abandons the kid to be like, <laughs> Good luck. go fix the electrical problems. You're on your own. He's there instructing him. So he's there the entire time. The kid is not in danger. He's there. He's observing. He's knowing. I mean, he obviously can't, you know, prohibit the kid from putting the two wires together. But, you know, he's he's there to like pull him out of danger immediately when things yeah. go wrong so what well, begs the question mando just spent a thousand credits getting this thing roped back together because <laughs> that's what the mon calamari i guess do i like that it looks like in the cockpit they're just like ropes that just pull different things now like yeah. he just has to yank something to go to this rope up here goes to hype uh, hyperspace this rope down here pulls the landing gear out but he just spent all this money. This is like taking your car to the repair shop. You drive away and then, you know, your, your bumper falls back off or something like that. Is there any kind of like warranty action? I mean, can he, if he were to, to have the time to do this, could he go back and, you know, have any kind of claim against that repairman? I mean, it, it would, it would imply, you know, you'd have to kind of look at what the, repairman was warranting and guaranteeing when he did the job he and I think he even says when he has hands over the credits I think he even says like I'll do the best I can so it's not Mm -hmm. like he's expecting you know it's not like grief that says oh we'll get our top people on it and we'll fix this up like new no he's like the ship's destroyed like I'll maybe get it to fly so you know, it, it depends on what Mando was expecting when he handed over the credits and what the repairman kind of agreed to 
repair for him and the condition he agreed to repair it in. Yeah, and when since Montcalmarly, since that species is supposed to be really good with spaceships, like mm -hmm. building B wings and all that good stuff, and this is what you got, like basically seaweed holding it together, <laughs> and you know it's it's you know there's there's the joke about rubber bands and bailing wire putting something back together again. That that happened here. And while I'm not opposed to using duct tape to fix something in a pinch, um, that that went pretty extreme. So, mm. yeah. well, you, I, I mean, if you leave your normal repair shop, there's not some implied or express warranty that's given. You might have like a customer service type complaint if something mm -hmm. goes wrong in your car and you just got the car from the the repair shop. But I don't know that you have a, a breach of warranty claim unless your car was under some kind of warranty or unless that's a, a part of the deal that you struck with that repair shop, you know, they offer a guarantee on repairs or something like that, but yeah, that so certainly wasn't the case here. I assume that actually probably a lot of service providers in their contracts just kind of expressly uh, d disavow all warranty where possible. In this one sense, the only contract we've seen was oral. You might argue, and you can argue, that there are warranties that are implied by circumstances um, or implied by law, maybe, you know, since this is a spaceport on Mon Calamari, there's, actually it's doubtful because it's like a pirate uh, cave or whatever but uh you know maybe there's a law that says that if you if you say that you'll make something space worthy there's certain standards it has to adhere to um he did say he would make it fly again i think you know you could argue in a court of law whether that means it'll fly for exactly you know 20 minutes or <laughs> it'll be space worthy to make it to the next port of call right something like that <laughs> And, and he definitely has, Mando has the court of public opinion. I mean, that's where you drop those Yelp and Google reviews. Yeah. So that- Mon You endangered Calamari my baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that Mon Calamari repairman is not, is getting one star. Like, sorry, <laughs> but only one star, my friend. <laughs> uh, so much there, so much there. And that's just the beginning in order to get to Navarro, mm -hmm. which is, um, let's talk about, Navarro is very different. So when we saw it in last season, it was a place for bounty hunters. And I don't know if it was intentionally to look like a big playland for scum and villainy, but it was, it looked rough, you know, it just it looked rough. Like New York in the eighties, rough. Like uh, I mean, a little yeah. worse. There were stormtrooper heads on pikes. Well, so. that that was not Navarro. That oh was no, that was the the other plan. Okay, sorry. <laughs> but you didn't see all of it, so I I assume there was a corner that you could go around, and there would have been a stormtrooper head <laughs> on a pike somewhere in that town. It did have that look to it. Yeah, it, it was a rough neighborhood. Again, I all stand by. New York in the 80s during Dinkin, you know, pre Giuliani. And, and before. Sorry, that's you know, a trigger warning now. <laughs> it's, there'll be future legal CLEs about ethics that we can talk about at a future <laughs> time, but not today. Uh, so we have, again, this rough place that's now 
hey, that looks nice. That 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 looks more like Galaxy's Edge. I was just <laughs> thinking. <laughs> I was like, when they started panning in on the town, I was like, Disney is totally like scoping this out to add like this is a preview of the next <laughs> Disney like installment. This is Disneyland, hundred percent. This is not a set. This is straight out of Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it's just like you walk in, it's like there's a marketplace. People there's are the, out. The curved like overhang thingies. Yeah, it's just like this. Uh, is Galaxy's Edge going to get refreshed at some point in time? So we're we're not on bat two, but we're going to Navarro, <clears throat> which again, I'm cool with. But I would be cool with that. <laughs> you just walk through a tunnel and it's like a hyperspace tunnel and suddenly you're on this new planet. I would pay. Uh, I would, yeah. It's just like, yeah, that works for me. So... Griff went from disgraced magistrate managing bounty hunters to head of state. You know that, and everything's hunky dory now. That it's like I gotta go tea because I'm mantastic, and and some upgraded gotta, threads too. Yeah, it's just like <clears throat> again, I remember Rocky, and and you know I in, in Rocky too. So I am one of those Gen Xers that would like to go jog on the beach with Carl Weathers. It's just, it's true. It's like, when <laughs> us are hardwired that way who are in our forties, we, we just want to go do that. And, <laughs> and others will vouch like, yeah, I'm in. Uh, and Arigo asked, ask your boyfriend, he's probably in too. And like, it's what we well, want Well, I do. will ask him. <laughs> He'll say yes. Yeah, I loved him in Predator. Like that's uh, so the town is thriving. It is absolutely thriving. And Gabby, there's a school. Oh my Which god! I know. <laughs> I loved this scene, guys. I've seen more. I was more of Nari the entire time. I was like, <laughs> "There's her school. There they are." And meanwhile, me, the pessimist. Was expecting somebody to like jump out and just be like, "Hey, younglings!" <laughs> yeah, you know, it's not, ira- it's not an irrational fear in this universe. <laughs> I mean, the kid with the macarons looked really questionable. Real questionable. He's a real jerk. <laughs> Again, Disneyland. The kid had. A little sleeve of blue macarons that you can buy at the next yeah. extension of Galaxy Set. <laughs> I'm I'm in. <laughs> Show me the person who's gonna go like, now nah, I'm good. I don't need that. No, we're all in. And everyone from age four to seventies in as well. Yeah, I was gonna say I am definitely buying some what were those like teal colored yeah. <laughs> macaroons the next time I am at Galaxy's Edge. It is happening. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have up. it, I'm baking my own. <laughs> well the the roasted um uh dragon looked like the meat. Oh my god at Galaxy's Edge. If they don't so- have a steak that is called yes. you know seared crate dragon at galaxy's edge they are obviously poorly managed <laughs> if not we just gave them an idea so you know just send us a little kickback and we'll find <laughs> it. 
<clears throat> and we're good to go. Uh, I like that we we had to watch Baby Yoda commit petty larceny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at his age, we can argue about, I guess, whether he has the mental capacity to form the intent to commit the crime. But Again, he's he did. We, we knew. Yeah. yeah, he definitely did. <laughs> Tom, you know that as, as that, the father of a little kid, you know that that's what. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Any, that's anytime happened. I bring in a bowl of anything into the room with her, she will stop whatever she's doing, just like he did, and look over and be like, "What that?" <laughs> and then come over and take it. So I get I I empathize with that kid in the class. I get robbed every single day in this house, but. And again, I think this is really cool because it's showing that Baby Yoda is really a kid who needs. Yeah moral education he's not just born as a child and inherently knowing oh this would be wrong for me to take this boy's cookies it's, i can i can take them with the force and he's not even gonna know it happened <laughs> but i mean the kid clearly didn't know the lesson of sharing is caring because he was just that like, is also no, is true. i'm just gonna obnoxiously eat my cookies in front of the class and not share with anybody so. And not share with the unbearably cute baby Yoda. Like exactly. saying no to that. Is, yeah. <laughs> Again, my this shows just like you know the cloth that you're cut from. It's like okay, you're there. Somebody sits down next to you who clearly looks hungry, who's a little kid, and you're not gonna give them a cookie. That doesn't mean you give them the entire sleeve. You go like. Oh, okay, here you go. Because <laughs> that's just the decent thing to do. It's, you know, again, and it changes. Somebody comes over, it's like, would you like a soda? You know, it's just you. Mm -hmm. There's decent. some just desserts, literally, <laughs> happening in that scene. <laughs> and again, I that's will a dad point joke out, I can appreciate. I will point out school, person with questionable morals. That is why we can't have schools in the star wars universe i'm sorry it's just it's not a good combination it, before before we move on to this like forced servitude of poor mithril i it was funny to me that this school was in the one place that got like shot up completely <laughs> at the uh, at the end of last season in fact mando makes that comment he's like going in there like wait a minute what <laughs> like this place of is all still the standing? building this couldn't yeah. be the only building that you had available to, to put a school in. <laughs> the one where all these people it died. It was a cantina. It was a cantina. It before. still looks bar like a bar. Still... Yeah. <laughs> we decided to remodel this bar as a school. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we're not going to tell the children about all the people who got shot here. And, and, and uh, whose heads are on pikes just around the corner. Don't worry about <laughs> yeah. that. Exactly. <laughs> bad <So>. man's dead. <laughs> Shot by other bad men. So, um, now, Tom, where did you notice the statue to IG-11? I So I watched this show religiously at 4 a.m. <laughs> on Fridays. <laughs> and I'm sitting there in the darkness watching this. And I can't be too loud because the, the little ones are asleep upstairs. And it was like that moment in or that meme of Leonardo DiCaprio from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he like sits up and, and snaps his finger and points. It's such a like a brief moment as they're walking into the cantina. But you see that IG-11 
glorious statue in in the town square and like we talked about this before with the the carbon sickness but that's like perfect fan service right there uh a character that we all grew to love he's obviously gone we're not going to focus on it they're not going to stand around and like gaze upon this statue and and reminisce about the last season they've got other stuff to do but they're going to put it in the background Mm -hmm. and i really enjoyed that made me want them to go outside and do just that gaze upon it but it was one of those treats yeah and it was was very realistic because ig11 was what kind of freed them from the imperial rule there and so to make a statue to him kind of seemed very real like something that would be done as they're rebuilding this town i mean if you can convert a cantina to a school you'd put up a statue of the person or droid who saved the town to kind of remember him by (laughs) yeah hopefully they didn't build it with a proton bomb in the middle of it (laughs) (laughs) that's the real secret it's like don't (laughs) self-destruct it it worked for me it was just that's the scene at the beginning of the town is not long, but there's so much packed in there that's just pure Star Wars. So emotionally rewarding. It's like, ah. And if that's the future of Galaxy's Edge, bring that on. Bring it on. So, uh, yeah, because they want to be a trading port. <laughs> so. And right after this high of seeing this township in its wonderful state with its wonderful <laughs> monument, we immediately see the dark underbelly, <laughs> which is that, uh, I think it's Mithral, is that how you pronounce it? Mithral. Mithral, yes. yes. Mithral is then uh, working off his debt, is the way yeah. it's put. Very, very questionable. Because which it's is like, like oh, centuries long. Town, but like, he was embezzling so we brought him back and now instead of just kind of sentencing him to some kind of punishment we're gonna have this debt and they don't even say how much he embezzled they just say he did some creative accounting mando gets him brings him back to grief and now he's the accountant and he has this life debt for like three centuries like long after grief is gonna be dead (laughs) It's just that is that is classic textbook forced labor. That's 18 USC 1589, which prohibits the use of of obtaining labor um, of any person through force, through threats of force, physical restraint, threats of harm, threatened abuse, abuse, anything like that. And actually, when I was looking into this, apparently there is a whole subcategory of forced labor known as bonded labor or debt bondage. And so that's what exactly what you have here. You have somebody who has been told that they can pay out their debt by working it off. And the work is often difficult and imposed under brutal circumstances, which I think you clearly have here. You have classic brute. I mean, he's, he's sending him to do all these unfortunate tasks that he, the Mithral clearly doesn't want to do. Um, and he's never going to be able to pay off the debt. I mean, grief kind of says, oh, I'll shave a hundred years off. Oh, I'll shave 30 years off. But like, it's still 200 years. Like it's still a ridiculous amount of time. So there's no way he's gonna pay off the debt. And if grief is acting as some sort of 
you know, I don't know if he's like the elected leader or if he's like the new mayor slash magistrate, which kind of sounds because he's we see him throughout the episode sort of wheeling and dealing with number of years. He's like exercising, you know, almost like prosecutorial authority over, <laughs> you know, the sentence and stuff. But if we're talking about it as a like a punishment, like a, 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 a judicially um, uh, imposed punishment, then I think it trips the Eighth Amendment, right? The, the uh, prohibition against cruel and unusual punishments that's that's enshrined in the Constitution there. And, you know, in particular, I, I think if you go back to Oh, gosh, I can't remember the case name, but uh, Brennan, uh, Justice Brennan famously a few decades ago sort of uh, wrote out and, and, and explained uh, and, and broke down what the Eighth Amendment means, like what qualifies as cruel and unusual punishment. And one of those, one of the sort of four tenets or, or uh, categories was a, uh, a punishment that's just patently unnecessary. And I think here it's a matter of just scale of the punishment severity of the punishment you know whatever his financial crime was unless he you know i don't know took all of the money from everybody on navarro <laughs> um it seems like it's it's pretty patently unnecessary to send it somebody to, to centuries of uh indentured servitude and and you know arguably a, a restriction on liberty because he can't leave the planet uh in exchange for a financial crime yeah and, you know, and maybe, oh, go ahead. Maybe they've, they've learned from like an Enron type situation that they just don't tolerate that anymore. Like they are like, nope, nope. You. Here's the thing. I mean, we're extrapolating off of very little data and I won't go into this too long as a result, but it doesn't sound like an Enron situation. We're just to distinguish here, you know, it doesn't sound like a mithril Took, a, took money from everybody and then disposed of it, right? He didn't buy stuff with it. He didn't put it into a bunch of stock that went to, to zero. Um, my guess is that most of it was stuff that could be restituted because it looks like he was caught before he could go and spend all of their money in any significant fashion. So then like assuming that you managed to restitute most of the money, you would then be left with only the punitive value of the punishment. Um, as opposed to this concept of paying off the debt to society or the people that he he robbed. <laughs> um, so I, I agree that this seems to be excessive. I, I believe there's also Supreme Court precedent for excessive fines violating the Eighth Amendment, right? So even if we're setting aside the part where this violates prohibitions against forced labor or indentured servitude, just the part where he's being expected to pay off the equivalent of 300 years of work worth of fines, <laughs> um, that would also probably be unconstitutional under our laws. And I, I, you know, grief should be lucky that Queel died at the end of season one, because as a poor creature that lived his entire life in the indentured servitude of the empire, I think he would have taken serious issue with um, this, this, the manner and, and uh, way in which this punishment was being inflicted. Yeah, and I, I can't help but wonder what is his quality of life? Because he owned a speeder. So it just, 
Is Honestly, like- he looks okay. I don't want to make too much of a molehill or a mountain out of this just because like we have fun with this. Yeah. It's like I'm thinking though specifically like there was a there was a, a little bit of talk about like baby Yoda committing genocide in the episode with the frog lady like <laughs> we can have fun talking about this. Yeah. I don't actually think grief is like a Nazi war criminal because of what he's doing here. Like- yeah, he's a conflict lease, uh, leasing in the you know, uh, late 19th century, early 20th. Like, we're not at that kind of... And also the context point. here, I think, is important. Like you pointed out, Josh, his quality of life actually appears to be quite nice. It doesn't look like his expenses for living are being added to his debt every day. <laughs> um, and the other part is that this is also a frontier justice land, as we see a lot of, right? With um, uh, Kara is the new marshal <laughs> and things like that. Um, it is entirely possible that in his frontier justice land... Um, in which there's a lot less uh, process and jurisprudence than we have in our world. <laughs> um, you know, the punishment that he might have been facing from the angry townspeople might have been way more severe, and this was technically a mercy. Um, and that's that's the context in which I choose to interpret this so that I don't have to look at grief as a monster. <laughs> when we don't know, like a mithral could live for 50,000 years, so mm-hmm. having a 300-year sentence is nothing to him. I just like the idea of grief on his death deathbed saying like don't you violate the terms of this i know you still have another 250 years i'll be haunting you (laughs) yeah although i do think i mean grief is getting pretty close to our top hostile work environment toxic work environment the empire um they are obviously the worst offenders when it comes to hostile work environment, but grief is getting pretty close with his treatment of the, of the mithral. I mean, he sends him out against his will onto this, uh, like whatever the, where the control panel Lava is. Flat, I think, which is yeah. particularly hostile to his species. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so he's, he's continually kind of pushing him into these dangerous situations against his will you know, this is pervasive conduct. I think a reasonable person would find Greece's treatment of the mithral abusive, if not hostile itself. Makes um, him go out on that gangway with no, no yeah. Uh, railing. Yeah. Jeez. So he, he, and he, the mithral is clearly distressed and it affects his work because I'm sure he got back to, you know, the town and he couldn't add his books correctly because he was so traumatized by, uh, by all that happened he's so, already only got one eye that that's currently functioning yeah <laughs> yeah so you know the grief better tell the line there and make some improvements to his employees well and you know um we sometimes uh, neglect to discuss when discussing hostile work environment the, the you know one of the required elements is that it's directed to or you know membership in a particular protected mm-hmm. class um i i actually practiced some employment law in um in my previous job and that is like the, the thing that i had to explain to people the most when when i was handling call-ins <laughs> was you know yes yes that sucks yes it sounds like you have a terrible boss yes it's a terrible working environment but is it directed to your membership in a particular class? Um, and in this case, though, I think, I think, Gabby, you might have a point because this appears to be the only member of his species in at least uh, the employ of grief. <laughs> yeah. I think there is a plausible argument here that he's being singled out. You know, 
this, this would go back and forth in court. He would, of course, say, no, this wasn't because of his membership in this species. It was because of X, Y, and Z. But there is a colorable argument here. Yeah. And, and he is seemingly given tasks that um, are kind of handyman type tasks that seemingly only he can perform. So, you know, opening the door, um, he's, he's, he's asked to open all the doors, which seems kind of a little weird that <laughs> I'm like, you have two hands. Why can't you open it? Like, what's wrong with you? And it's just, it's odd. Hopefully we get to learn more about his species and why he's the only one that can kind of do these tasks. Well, that's because uh, grief gave him the code cylinder to mm. open the doors. So yeah. he had the key. Yeah, so but there's like there's the other one. There's like he has to go get the um, open the the communique from mm -hmm. Dr. Pershing, and when they first get to the base, he's the one that's at, he has grief forces him out of the speeder to open the door with his little torch gun, laser cutter so, designed for plumbing, plumbing tool. <laughs> you're lucky i even packed it Which, yeah. it's, it sounds like that's another job that he's being made to do back yeah. in town exactly <laughs> you know the town plumber yeah there's a, there's a difference it's here a real between... crappy job so, yeah uh, i couldn't resist dad that. joke dad joke right there <laughs> i know the fact you have two kids now they're just gonna you know keep flying these are layups <laughs> now yeah <laughs> you know it's just Thanksgiving is going to be wild at your place. So my <laughs> my thought is people are doing their jobs based upon their skill set. You know, uh, Cara Dewan's not asked to like, hey, go figure out how to make the computer work because her job's to shoot people and blow stuff up. Like she's good at that. So she's, that's what she does. The The issue then of the mechanic doing mechanic type activities, open the door, uh, uh, sabotage the coolant device, that all seems in line with his skill set. So I don't think he's being picked on because he's blue or he's a quad. <laughs> you know, this isn't like, that's not happening here. It's not because he's fishy. It's because it's like, dude, this is what you're good at. It's do it, you know, or, you know, he's not being like tossed into like do Mando's job of, all right, I want you to take out those seven guys. Yeah. Like that's, that's not, <laughs> we know how that ends. Here, take this jetpack, get up yeah. there. <laughs> but he is an accountant. We, we see him as an accountant and then he gets all these kind of mechanical tasks added to him. So it would be interesting to know what his job is or if grief is just assigning these kind of lowly jobs to him because he is blue and fishy. I think the accessing the computer definitely is within his skill set because of the financial knowledge and use. I, I would think using computers and complex programs would be necessary for it. Sounds, it sounds like this is a question best left to the jury and not disposed of at summary judgment. <laughs> uh, have you been doing a lot of SMJs? <laughs> <laughs> Well, those are stressful. It's okay. You're in a safe place. So we know they're stressful. So yeah, uh, agreed. It's definitely a jury question, which then raises, uh, I, I was, I, I think I talked with Thomas about this on the phone. 
just raising the issue and Nari and uh, Gabby, I didn't have a chance to call you. It's not because I don't love you. It was because I literally didn't have time to he call He just you. loves me more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I accept that. I'm not going to try to come between you two. <laughs> yeah, so the fact that we the will we that, won't interrupt those four AM texts. Exactly. <laughs> you had to bring it back to that. Yeah, no. Nari and I are just here to provide the correct and factual information. That's it. That's this all we're true. here for. So the fact that you know Marissa said to, to Tom, "Hey, it's okay if you want to call Josh. You don't have to say like you have a reason to talk to him. You're a friend." I learned my lesson. Now I just pick up the phone. So <laughs> I, I was commuting. I had the time. It was good. <laughs> you know, it's what we do. I, I did the same with Barry. Uh, but that that said, um, what is is there a state of war on Navarro with the Empire or the Imperial Remnant? Because Navarro, they said like, okay, here's the planet. Here's our town. Here's where we, the safe zone where we're totally in control. And here's the Imperial outpost that looks a lot like Edu, which raises issues of, did they have modulized compartments that they, they made forward bases and just dropped them wherever they wanted them? Because that would make sense if you're an empire. That would actually make uh, a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah it's, but, and that's what Tom and I talked about. Okay, that's how we roll. Um, <laughs> these are things. These are the things you know. that percolate on my mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, is there a state of war between those two? And you're the judge. So, Tom, does this harken back a little bit to the discussion from, I think, the previous episode where we were having a long discussion about whether the Empire was even a nation state at this point? Yeah, well, now you have you have the same question about Navarro. Like, what's the state of that? I mean, this is like a town. I don't know if there are any other, um, you know, habitable zones in this area. But is is this the capital town? And now grief and and these residents are sort of like the capital city, representing all of Navarro. That's that's the way that grief talks about it. Because mm -hmm. and and certainly like when uh, Carson Tava, the X-wing pilot. Uh, talks to Cara Dune, it sounds like they're interacting as if this is like a, the locality that kind of controls the planet. And, and uh, Grief certainly seems to envision the, the planet under his thumb as, you know, reestablishing its trade connections and that sort of thing. So if, if they've got some sort of sovereignty, then you, you get into the question of whether the, the empire, that remnant there, that, um, at that base even have a, a lawful right to exist and, and be combatants are they are they lawful combatants and i won't rehash that whole argument about the the remnant but um it's interesting I, the, on the sovereignty thing you know the fact that it's grief and his hired guy his sheriff and then his hired gun and indentured servant going out as opposed to like <laughs> you know a uniformed military force or something I think that complicates things, but uh, yeah, it's, it's so interesting seeing how the tables have turned. Cause this is, this continues to be the only show where the, we see the empire, not as this ubiquitous, like evil force that just has all of the resources in the galaxy at its disposal. They're back on it, on their heels. Um, and, and to see, this is sort of a neat peek into what it's probably like 
all over the galaxy with planets of different means pushing back uh, on the Imperials. Uh, for, and for anyone who didn't listen to our discussion uh, in the previous episode, we spent a decent amount of time discussing the meaning of sovereignty, requirements for it, like you have to hold territory, things like that. So if you didn't listen to that and you're curious, go back and watch that one. Um, and not to rehash it here, but I do want to point out that this seems to me like uh, the fact that it's the local authority grief who seems to be like their magistrate or something and the marshal, you know, seems to be an elected uh, law enforcement official and their mercenary, maybe posse, <laughs> go out, uh, seems to emphasize, though, that they don't treat the empire here like it's in a state of war. It's more like a law enforcement action. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that is how you would treat something more like a terrorism activity that you're trying to shut down. So you know, the FBI in the United States directs a lot of its resources towards counterterrorism, um, not necessarily towards wartime activities <laughs> like that's mm -hmm. not what the fbi is about it's supposed to be limited to our soil um so i think there's a, a little bit of an analogy to draw there to maybe highlight the fact that at this point the empire seems to be operating as this what's the word for it like like transnational um organization uh, that does seem to still have a significant amount of resources but doesn't have sovereign claim to any particular territory yeah yeah and I, in I, fact I, they go there not because they think there's something bigger afoot but they're just cleaning out the planet. These are, uh, you know, I would liken it to like a cell of ISIS or the Taliban that are still hanging on in, in those parts of the world. And it's not like we go in and, you know, arrest them as an international force, right? They're, they're just treated differently than your average criminal. Um, and here, you know, it's, it's almost like a, they go there, not just to, to clear the Imperials out, but the grief stated purpose is that uh, there's a lot of heavy weaponry and they don't want to see that fall into the black market and cause further problems. So you talk about, I mean, it's like a, you know, a, a raid that ATF would be doing stateside here to, to uh, get rid of a, a large wep weapons cache or something like that. Yeah, I mean, if, if I may, what it reminds me of from a historical precedent would be President Washington leading troops against the Whiskey Rebellion and with Alexander Hamilton at his side. That's how serious they took it, that the president led troops to put it down. And this, I think, is somewhat comparable. Now, granted, the force is only four people. You know, the accountant plumber who's doing lots of heavy lifting the marshal who's the one woman ass kicking machine is, and the is Nando or Kara Hamilton in this analogy <laughs> uh, I think Kara uh, 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 is actually Hamilton in this one because I don't remember who the att first attorney general was um, <laughs> I'm good but I didn't memorize the entire first cabinet so um Sorry, I didn't date much or have much of a social life back then, but I didn't memorize every part of the Washington administration. Sorry to disappoint. Um, you say that and I'm like realizing that if those cabinet members had been depicted in like a Star Wars visual dictionary and had like a role in a, I would know all their names yep. and their backgrounds 
rapid In fact, recall. the only reason I know any of <laughs> or most of the first cabinet is thanks to Hamilton the musical. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. My pop culture library <laughs> is a little larger than my historical one, and that might exactly. be distressing. Yeah, I, I look forward to getting my full library out of storage. And um, yes, um, yeah, we, we can definitely go over that just for giggles. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't have, I don't recall. Uh, but yeah, we could we could hit up you know Lucasfilm and say like, hey, why don't you guys just lean in? <laughs> I, I like to see Washington done as like the visual uh, guide to Star Wars. That would that would look kind of cool actually. Look, if you reimagine those stories with them wearing Beskar and having like blasters instead of muskets, kids across America would know their history better than any time in the. Isn't there like a Klingon Shakespeare? company yeah. i would not be surprised yeah, at all they need to do a mandalorian american history company doing like yes. hamilton and things like that <laughs> you've got my money yeah so so yes we do we have a strike force with the head of state or the mayor i mean like is this is this a city state and like you know, they're. But he says, "I, I want." That's them probably a pretty close equivalent, right? Especially yeah. given how large the galaxy is and how large the Republic was. This seems like a city-state. And this this always irks me, even though they seem to be getting better. At least we see more of Tatooine and the different areas on it. It's like so you're in one part of the planet, a planet, <laughs> and that'd be like saying we're going to Earth. And you just show San Francisco. It's a whole planet. You know, it's like, or it's like, we're just gonna go to Salt Lake City. Okay, that's a very specific place. It's a fun place. Or it's like landing in Guam and then acting like that's all of Earth. It's like this little <laughs> island. <laughs> yeah, just, there's there's definitely more here. You know, there's going to the Tabernacle for, for lunch is a fun experience, but it doesn't represent every meal on the planet because um, that'd be weird if it did uh yes so i just it just made me think about this raid so <laughs> um <laughs> so made me think about this raid and what what it was that that we saw uh now we do have some notes here about was it unlawful to infiltrate the imperial base I, i'll operate on the assumption I, I won't dive down the rabbit hole of whether the empire has any legal authority to enforce rules we'll just as, assume that they do for purposes of uh this argument but generally speaking like you have normal trespass law right but military bases in particular have there's a federal statute um 18 usc 1382 that makes it a, a specialized offense to trespass on a military base. And it's actually, you can commit it in one of two ways. It's unlawful to go onto a military base for some unlawful purpose. So you could, you know, if you've got a military base in your state, you can go visit, go through the, the visitor registration process and, and go drive around the base and, uh, you know, see some cool things and, and then leave and you have no problem. Uh, they're not, Unless we're on some sort of Is this an invitation? Lockdown. I would like to see cool things on a military base. All the time, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, you got, 
Well, in DC, you've got cool things like flying above you all the time. You, like look up and see a black hawk or something like that. Oh yes, there's an entire Twitter account called Helicopters of DC that is dedicated to identifying all of the whirly birds, which are never news choppers. They're always government uh, choppers because of how restricted our airspace is. Well, if, uh, if if this is the only aside, you go to Fort Meade sometime. Uh, they've got the old horse stables uh, that are still there. That um, in the trial defense office i don't know if they still have horses or not if that's where they keep some of the horses for arlington i i I honestly don't know if if that's where they're um they're stabled but in any event i say that because the tds office was like right there (laughs) but what you can't go on a military base for is like something unlawful so like the classic example like you can't go on a military base to deal drugs right that's unlawful like your whole intent to get onto the military bases to do that illegal thing that's a no-no um and so it's a specific intent crime here i think that's exactly what you have they are setting out and again i'm presuming that the imperials have uh jurisdiction over this base and it you know it, they, they can control its borders and that sort of thing they're going there to destroy equipment and do nefarious things they're not going there to, to say hello and and you know get a t-shirt or something like that you can also violate that law if you've been kicked off of a military base which can happen and you attempt to come back on the military base that requires no intent whatsoever just you lined up trying to get into the gate triggers the crime uh so that doesn't seem like the case here I, it does I, no none of this crew has been there so really what we're we're talking about is their desire to go blow things up and shoot people yeah. being the bad thing and as a as a quick aside i can say that you should definitely have a reason and a process to go onto a military base because if you get lost on a military base or trying to go into a military base it will not end well for you. It is a very scary experience. I speak <laughs> as someone who got lost going to a JAG interview at our Groton subbase here, and it was quite terrifying. And I was like, this close to possibly getting arrested. I did not. I got to my interview. It was fine, but it was a, <laughs> definitely a very worrisome experience. So please do not accidentally end up on the entrance of a military base without knowing why or who you're there to see because done, it will not be great <laughs> i've done that as an officer i got lost on fort bragg which is the, the most idiotically laid out base in the entire world <laughs> um but there are some places that you don't want to like cross into on that base and i'll leave it at that like it, big no-no areas that you know you don't want to stumble into <laughs> and so is it where they're keeping the aliens tom no that's out in, on the west coast that's like oh, okay. you know, nevada <laughs> and stuff or I is be it talking about that or is it yeah, <laughs> but anyhow they can't blow it up but i don't I, going back to the, the core of it the empire they're a bunch of war criminals at this point so yeah. their stupid little base can get blown up yeah, yeah I, <laughs> I, I really think they are like at this point and it, it's really interesting to see because right now they're a shadow organization for for lack of a better term they're not any sort of military you know they're disjointed I mean they have it's weird they're like a pseudo military because they still have their uniforms left over but they're in no way shape or form any sort of concrete military that we see either in the originals 
or in, in the Clone Wars, you know, we, that is not what we're seeing here. And to, they're a shadow organization, terrorist organization. This is a, a rabbit hole that I do not intend to, to push us all down, but there is an argument. I, I in watching, we'll, I guess, presumably get to, to the last part of the episode in just a minute here. But what's clear from this episode is that Moff Gideon and the folks with him are part of something bigger, I think, and something that's not just, I, I don't think after watching this episode that he is just this warlord that mm-hmm. happens to have some loyal troops. I think he's part of, uh, as you say, Gabby, a, a, some sort of shadow element of the Empire that's still operating. There's an argument to be made, I think, canonically, that some segment of the empire, the imperial military, could view the peace treaty that was signed as the New Republic as being just illegitimate. Uh, Masameda, the the blue uh, Shagrian that that was um, vizier to Palpatine for years, he's actually the one that signed the peace treaty as like the uh, the emperor's proxy. I don't know if he had legal authority to to step into that role and sign, but you know, from the rebellion standpoint, he's the highest person that they could find. You know, he's like, I I don't know if he was, if there was an actual succession plan where he would have taken over, but he's the one that signed. And I could see easily some high ranking Imperials going like this guy was Palpatine's executive assistant. Like he had no authority whatsoever. He had a cool staff and that was about it. He handled (laughs) scheduling matters and told people to quiet down and like, you know, there will be order. Um, and so, you know, they'll never get into this. This would be like Star Wars West Wing, but, um, you know, there's an argument to be made that, (laughs) you know, that that peace treaty is wholly illegitimate, that Moff Gideon and the remaining Imperial forces are still part of the legitimate government of the galaxy, um, you know, assassination of Palpatine aside, so. And we, we may in fact see that, or at least some part of that given the kind of differing natures of the Mandalorians that we're seeing that we're seeing you know not all Mandalorians are the same we may see that kind of reflected with the empire that not all you know the empire not all elements of the empire what it was are the same that there's you know uh, extremists there's you know people who just want order and peace and are going along with things so we may in fact see at least a small part of it play out. I wouldn't be surprised if part of the grand plan involves Grand Admiral Thrawn because that would be a nice uh, mic drop at the end of season two to if, if that's who's work. I, he wouldn't outrank Gideon because Gideon's a moth. So if Thrawn is still out there and they have him back. He could be the one helping execute this grand plan for their new era. So I don't think this is connected to the sequel trilogy. I don't think it involves cloning. I I think this involves something else. And, but that's just my hunch. I would agree to disagree with you. Um, I, I think this is a good segue. Yeah. I think this is setting up cloning. I think you have, we've already had Dr. Pershing, um, Mm -hmm. with, with the, um, marks of, um, I'm blanking on the name. Tom, help me out. The name of the patch that he wears. Oh, the Kamen Owens. 
Yes. Um, and oh, that is such a good catch. That um, and that the officers that we see at the computers are also have also have the same Camino yeah. patch. So, and the fact that these look like the Snoke clones in Rise of Skywalker, I think that's what they're setting up. They're setting up this kind of continuation, just kind of this the same way they kind of used Rogue One as this connecting bridge. Um, I think they're going to use this do Mandalorian to do the same um, to That's at least explain away some of the inconsistencies of Rise of Skywalker, and I think handing it back to Dave Filoni, who respects this, you know, respects Star Wars so much. Um, I think he may add a complexity to everything that happened in Rise of Skywalker um, and be able to kind of patch some things up. Um, but that's just my. I like that. I like that thought a lot. Yeah, I, I, I think it's something else, and because I, I paused and looked at you know the tank, and they talked about volunteers or at least test subjects. We don't know if they volunteered or if they were voluntold uh, that they were going to getting get ahead of my discussion of medical experimentation. <laughs> the point I'm going, this doesn't look like a clone. This looks like mm -hmm. somebody who got an infusion of. Well, they, they do mention the word transfusion. I don't want to rule out cloning as well. Um, mm -hmm. This particular experiment, um, it seems to have involved transfusion of baby Yoda's blood into an already developed subject, perhaps. It looks like those are adult sized. What are you, what would you call them? Preserved specimens in yeah. the tanks. Floaties. And it, it reminded me of how Tetsuo looked in Akira as his power mm. was out of control. Yeah, that's a good that, analogy. That you see one of the arms all mutated. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so if they're trying to create force users, Mm -hmm. That's what I imagined. Is that yeah. The, yeah? They're trying to create. Oh, they're trying to find a way to make force users out of non-force users. Yeah, and and it is important to note that cloning is not just kind of replication of you know one thing. Cloning can also be used for biomedical research, um, and it is allowed in states um, that there are laws. Um, there's no federal laws regarding cloning. Um, but there are states that allow cloning for biomedical research, which is me teeing up for Nari to go into her medical experiments. <laughs> Absolutely. Just to just to mention a little bit of the lore here, though, like the reason why the Camino patch might still be con fully consistent with this is that although, you know, the, Cam the Camino Caminoans were most well known for having accepted the commission to create the clones for the army of the Republic, um, they were so chosen for the commission because of their expertise in genetics, um, which doesn't necessarily mean that these particular specimens or this particular experiment has to be producing clones or using clones. It could just be involving heavy genetics, which it appears to be. Um, but yes, thank you for teeing me up. So, <laughs> um, you know, there, whatever is going on here, there is obviously some kind of medical experimentation involving humans or other sentient life forms, right? And so for our purposes, I'm going to pretend that earth laws would apply to sentient aliens. <laughs> um, 
Now there's a few buckets that this falls in. The first one is there is some international law regarding this. Um, so uh, going back to the Nuremberg Code. So during the, uh, or in response to the, the Nuremberg trials of Nazi doctors who performed uh, highly unethical experimentation uh, before and during World War II, um, the Nuremberg Code was developed, uh, it was the first major international document that provides guidelines on research ethics if you are doing uh, ex medical experiments with humans. Um, the first and most important requirement that is reflected in every other piece of law uh, in the United States is voluntary consent requirement. <laughs> so, um, and it specifies what consent means in this context, it means that it's consent meaning free from coercion. So, you know, uh, it wouldn't qualify like, oh, well, they said they agreed. Yes, it's like, yes, but you were also holding them prisoner. <laughs> like, that doesn't really count. Um, the other one is they have to comprehend the risks and benefits. So this would be, for example, you know, if if you said, I'd like, you know, do you agree to be part of this experiment involving um, a heart pressure medication, but in fact, you were doing it on a psychedelic or something like that, <laughs> that would not count. Um, and uh, the code also states that researchers have to minimize risk and harm and make sure that the risks do not significantly outweigh potential benefits, right? So you can't use humans to experiment with a drug that might, you know, improve skin quality, but also has a 10% chance of horrible death. Um, <laughs> Etc. There is also uh, the Declaration of Helsinki, um, which was adopted at the 18th World Medical Assembly, lays out more principles to guide physicians on ethical considerations. Um, of course, you know, the, the Declaration of Helsinki is not itself binding. The Nuremberg Code, I think, might be, but it, it's not self-enforcing international law. So it requires the United States or states to pass further statutes to actually make those uh, principles and guidelines actionable or enforceable. So US the US has some federal law on this. Um, so the federal policy or common rule for the protection of human subjects requires that each institution engaged in federally supported human subject research has to file a document that's basically an assurance um, that they're going to follow uh, certain guidelines to protect human subjects. Um, so generally speaking, uh, federal law requires that human medical experimentation has to be overseen by something which if anyone had listened to some previous podcasts when we were talking about laws governing, you know, vaccines um, and emergency use of different biologics that was like, I don't know, way back when in March when the, 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 the virus was first starting, the Rona was first starting, um, you might remember this phrase institutional review boards, um, which are basically composed of people, you know, at any particular private or academic institution, but those boards um, have to meet certain requirements. They're certified or accredited by the FDA. Um, for loyal listeners of the Legal Geeks, um, you will notice that there has to be a federal hook for this to apply. In this case, it's um, research that gets federal funding or products like biologics or chemicals that are otherwise regulated by the FDA. Everything else you need that doesn't fit into those two buckets, so you're not getting federal funding, you're not dealing with a substance that's already regulated by the FDA, you have to get to the state law because states have general police powers and do not have to be limited to the enumerated powers of the federal government. Um, and there are lots of state laws <laughs> governing uh, human medical experimentation. Um, in fact, I'm extremely confident every state has many laws <laughs> governing them. In particular, California has dozens of laws that bear on this, but the most important are certainly 
California Health and Safety Code 24170 through 24179.5, which starts by citing the Nuremberg Codes and Declaration of Helsinki and codifies, among other things, the informed consent process um, and establishes an experimental subjects bill of rights um, and provides it has that has to be provided to all research subjects and medical experiments. There's a bunch of other statutes that are implicated, right? Child welfare ones, if there are experiments involving minors, um, and California penal codes, various sections starting with 3500, um, which describe provisions and prohibitions for research and the informed re in consent requirements for prisoners. And that was very aptly timed because just two days ago, we hit the 75th anniversary of the Nuremberg trials that gave birth to all of these things. Yes, Justice Robert Jackson's finest hour, uh, his opening statement took two days to deliver and it should be required reading in history classes and at law schools because it is phenomenal uh, to read. But so uh, to get back to this Mandalorian episode, um, you know, technically, the, uh, the scientist describes the people involved in the experiment as volunteers and describes Baby Yoda as the donor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do we think that this falls within the, the colors within the lines of any of these laws? <laughs> I mean, we don't know who their volunteers are. And, you know, I think this point was made earlier, how much they're volunteering. Um, but given how we've seen of, um, you know, imperial loyalists, the person could be totally willing. I mean, and if there, I've seen some theories on the internet that this person, that these are, you know, if this is kind of a Rise of Skywalker kind of connection, that the volunteer they're talking about um, is Palpatine's son, and mm. they're trying to make a force sensitive being. And that's why, and they say the M count and that's the midichlorian count, um, but they don't want to use the N word <laughs> to trigger a bunch of people. Um, yeah, I, was, but, you, yeah. I think you're spot on. You like sparked something in me that, that we know, well, we know Palpatine's son is a strand cast, which is a biologically engineered human. And not thanks to the movie itself, but th thanks to the visual guide. So, it's a good storytelling there. Um, and then from last season, Gabby, as you were talking, you like sparked my memory of that scene with Queel where he's meeting with uh, Mando and uh, Cara Dune. And he's like you know, going back and forth with Cara, with, like basically asking if she was a strand cast, like if she had just been created. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he mentioned something like she was farmed in the, the cytocaves of Nora or something like that. So this sort of thing is clearly happening out there in the galaxy. And uh, w what's interesting is, and I, you know, I don't know the answer to the, the question I'm posing here, but the Kaminoan scientists, Kamino itself is a sovereign planet, right? We know, I don't think it's ever been a member of the Republic. Um, well, no, I take that back because they did have a, they had a Senator during the Republic by virtue of the fact that they had provided clones to the, the Republic. So they had some sort of uh, affiliation there, but they're uniformed officers of the government, I guess. I don't know if there's like a private Kaminoan company that they're operating under the flag of, but I will, for purposes of this argument, say that it's, you know, they're representatives of some arm of the Camino government. 
And, you know, so that raises a question now that you've got, you know, if there is a framework of laws in place about this sort of thing, um, you, this isn't just some like crazed wild element of uh, the empire that's off doing its own thing. Now you've got a, a sovereign uh, government in the galaxy involved in this sort of thing um, that may very well be illegal. Yeah. And, and I and think I, those people were volunteers the same way that the clones were perfectly manufactured without defects. <laughs> but I think the, the volunteer question is a little up in the air. The donor question is very clear. That is not a willing donor. They kidnapped him. I mean, they put a bounty on his head to get that donor. That is the equivalent of um, you know, the histories we have here in the United States of, P of using um, various groups of society to do medical procedures, um, you know, forced sterilization, um, depending on, you know, of, of African-Americans, of um, mentally and physically disabled people. So th that's kind of that forced medical treatment that the child would fall into because he was not he did not i mean he was asleep and he looked adorable but he was not a willing donor um, no for sure and uh you know these medical experimentation laws do not require as a predicate that the experiment you're doing has to be horrible and painful in order for mm -hmm. you to run afoul of the law mm -hmm. um but there is you know there's complicated laws governing um consent um and informed consent and including when you know if the person in question is not capable of giving consent, there's still further law to mm -hmm. dictate who can give consent on behalf of that person. And if you can't find anyone who can give consent on behalf of that person, you are basically out of luck. Um, yeah. the, there's only one circumstance and that's when you're trying to give life-saving treatment and you can't find, and then the person is incapable of giving consent either because they're incapacitated or they're mentally incapable because they're you know undeveloped a minor. Um, you know, in, in circumstances in which you want to administer life-saving treatment and you literally cannot find someone to give informed consent despite best efforts, you could do that. When it comes to something like an experiment, which is not to give compassionate use of a biologic, um, you're, you're, this is just should have been game over for the empire yeah. scientists. And, and I think it, it throws, this is a question to, to Corey and, and a kind of interesting wrench because um, had IG-11, I mean, IG-11's theory was to destroy, he, he had kill orders, but let's say that he didn't have kill orders and he was just there to kind of obtain the child, bring him back and for this donor um, project. Um, that would be the scenario, like you said, that you could not find anybody to give consent. You throw Mando now in the mix. Mando is now his acting guardian. Um, now it's up to Mando to give any sort of consent for any medical procedures. Um, so I, Something I think, tells me that's going to be a tough sell. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think that just throws a very, very interesting wrench into it. They've kind of, by establishing this parental relationship, guardian relationship, it throws a further wrench into that, any sort of medical treatment issues that would come up later, um, because now you have a, another person making mm -hmm. consent um, or being able to give consent um, on behalf of the child. Good points. Well done. Well mm -hmm. done. And then you get into a bit of lighter fare when they, you know, hotwire a, a Thomas. <laughs> what kind of what kind of vehicle is that that they steal from the the base? 
Well, it's an Imperial troop transport, but they gave it a name this time, yeah. and I, I can't remember off the top. I believe of my it head. was a Marauder. A Marauder. Yeah, I don't know if they had provided that name before. Yeah, but they they hotwire it and they steal it off the base, which is the classic form of Grand Theft Auto, if we're considering or Grand Theft spaceship um because it is the intentional taking of another's vehicle this vehicle does not belong to them it belongs to the empire shadow organization or whatever you want to call these moff gideon followers um without the owner's consent there's no (laughs) clear obviously they don't want them to take it um with the intent to permanently deprive them of the vehicle um and by taking it, they're not going to return it. They're not going somewhere to then return. They're taking it to flee. So there's obviously no intent to um, return it. Um, and, and I thought it was interesting um, when I was looking at this, the difference between Grand Theft Auto and a carjacking is that carjacking requires the immediate presence of the owner. Grand Theft Auto, mm. the owner of the vehicle does not have to be present. That's hot wiring the car and stealing it. Um, so yeah, they are definitely taking some property there um probably and, would be a felony given the because i think the mithral says that this vehicle is quite expensive oh yeah yeah he does i love that he said is says Yo. it's a classic <laughs> <laughs> like just referencing <laughs> the the toy um yeah i the the other wrinkle in this and again this is assuming that the imperials still have some cognizable form as a government or a governmental entity uh, taking government property is in, in military property at that is uh, an additional thing. It makes it a, a federal crime, uh, at least in this instance. Um, and so that the act, the mere fact that it is uh, governmental property uh, and you steal it on top of breaking into a base, uh, I, I think your, your criminal liability exposure uh, goes up significantly with that added flavor in there. So in our outline, there's a note that the exceptions to the Posse Comitatus Act preventing the military from exercising civilian law enforcement powers off of military bases. There are exceptions for, what is USCG, sorry? Coast Guard. Coast Guard, okay. Yeah, they can do um, And Space Force was added, is that right? I, according to what I looked at, they have <laughs> uh, exceptions somewhere, I don't know. <laughs> We'll revisit this podcast in like a year and we'll see if they exist still or if they've been eaten by the Air Force again. (laughs) So that part may be irrelevant. I just just want Space Force to go the way of Pluto and be like, there's (laughs) a generation of kids being like, I remember when Space Force was a thing. (laughs) Before we get too far off the topic, we've talked about we would like a Star Wars office and a Star Wars West Wing. As an avid gamer, I would appreciate a Star Wars Grand Theft Auto. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> You've got five stars, a Star Destroyer shows up. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I would be down for that. Sorry, Josh. The, uh, no, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, it's give it time is all I got to say. We'll, uh, we'll probably know in six months. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. What's interesting about the chase is uh, a, I thought it was a fun scene, but uh, the Imperials go off base to chase them. And you don't really see that. I mean, not 
I don't know that anybody here has lived near a base and seen this sort of thing, but you're not going to see military police go chasing down somebody that even has committed a crime necessarily in the uh, within the perimeter of the base. They're going to hand it off to local law enforcement because there's a difference in jurisdiction. Uh, think of a military installation like this little bubble, and it depends on the state and it depends on the installation, um, but there are many of these installations that are solely uh, federal jurisdiction. So it's as if the federal government has carved out this piece of land and it's just the military's jurisdiction there, just the federal government's jurisdiction. Um, some states have dual uh, jurisdiction. So like a, a you know police officer can come onto base and exercise authority. But what you're not gonna see and what's like very uh, deeply enshrined in our law is the use of uh, military personnel to perform law enforcement functions, except in really limited circumstances. And, uh, you know, controversially, we, we saw this play out in sort of a different sense uh, earlier this summer. And you, I think, saw in, in that real life example just why this is so important in our society. Uh, the empire has always sort of really blurred the line. You've got stormtroopers all over the place um, performing various non-military functions, like the scene in Solo where he's like whipping by, Han is whipping by in the speeder with Kira, and you've got like a, a stormtrooper who looks like a police officer, <laughs> basically on a on a speeder with a siren on him telling him to, to pull over. So I, I think it's treated a little differently in the Star Wars universe, but uh, generally speaking, if this were the real world, you're not going to see, you know, like TIE fighters and speeder bikes coming off the base. Um, you'll get arrested just by somebody else. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was going to say there might be some surplus TIE fighters or speeders that the police force buys. They up, never but... let me ride around on a speeder bike. So I, you know, <laughs> Jags always get the butt end of everything. <laughs> well, that's why I think this is, you know, that state of war type discussion. Because I, I don't think of the Imperials, whether they're the remnant or Imperials in fact, or terrorists, I I don't think they fall into those categories because they still think they're a legitimate government and they see that their base has been attacked. So they're not trying to arrest, they're trying to destroy. And I do love what we saw because uh, the, the TIE fighter is a lot like the Japanese zero in World War II. It, sac- it sacrificed having armor for speed and speed was supposed to be its protection uh, against the slower American planes that had armor and were thus slower. So they, they wanted to kill quickly. Same type of mindset with, 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 with the TIE fighters. Uh, they really ramped up what happens when you shoot down a TIE fighter. Like we we really haven't seen the pilots die like that before. <laughs> so like they did twice they, here. Yeah, they 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 turned the dial up on that one. Uh, and I, I appreciated it. It was like, okay, again, they had the TIE fighter toys where the wings would pop off. <laughs> I did too. I still miss it. Loved it dearly. And I had Darth Vader's and, and a regular one. Those were wonderful toys. But um, that's immediately what I thought of in watching this. 
um, even though they do have the German uh, element that the plane makes a noise as it dives. So you definitely know what it sounds Stuka. like. Yeah, because yeah. they, they uh, Mithral and, and Dune just look at each other when they hear the TIE fighters. So like there isn't mm -hmm. like a the radar signal. They it's it's audio and they're like, oh mm -hmm. crap. Um, so no, I appreciated that so much. Yeah, so, I, I I guess in fairness to the Posse Comitatus Act, their base literally blew up as they were taking off. Like what else are they gonna do yeah. but try to chase down the people that did this? So that's a fair point. Uh, and speaking of TIE fighters and spaceships flying around and stuff, we see that X-Wing pilot again, Carson Tava from, was that episode two? Yes. Yeah. And he has this really interesting exchange with Kara where, you know, he's interacting with her and sort of recognizing her, her law enforcement creds. And it was just an interesting peek into how the new Republic is operating. I think we've talked a little bit about this um, actually in the context of that episode, but he's trying to bargain with her to, in a way to, to get her, not just to, to rejoin the new Republic, but to try to forge some sort of, uh, cooperation, uh, between the, the government there on Navarro and the new Republic, which I thought was a neat scene to see play out. Yeah, definitely interesting to see them kind of, you know, that what would be a very difficult and messy transition between being a sort of scrappy, insurgency to trying to govern um, a very large territory of many, many worlds. Um, so that was really interesting. And there was that moment where uh, he sets down this emblem that I spent a while after the episode trying to, I had like my visual guides like splayed out at 5 a.m. in the morning, trying to figure out if I had seen that before. And I spent the weekend sort of thinking about it and I was actually talking to one of our longtime listeners and he, he posited that uh, it's, it's a badge of some type, like a law enforcement badge. If you look on the bottom of it, there's uh, like a, um, a ribbon of, for lack of a better term, basically like a colored little rectangle uh, with a design. It's the same design that she has on her belt buckle and yeah. the same design that um, Cobb Vanth has on his belt buckle. And so perhaps it's a, he speculated that it's the universal symbol for, or the galactic symbol for law enforcement. And that, you know, who knows what role this is going to play, but uh, that it's effectively him handing over like a badge to her. Uh, to in to an be like an to, officer, a law enforcement officer of the new Republic. Yeah, like you're deputized or something. Yeah. So I, I thought that was a really, I, I won't take any credit for it because it was all his thought, but it was a, a really keen insight. I like that. Mm -hmm. that conceptually makes sense. I like that. So. Yeah. I don't, I think we're going to see that badge again. They they lingered on it too long mm -hmm. for it to just be a throwaway. It it be it'd be a horrible tease. We're going to yeah. set this up and then just walk away, and <laughs> never to be mentioned ever again. <laughs> like that I want to think. I want to thank all of you for illuminating me, though, about like the significance of that badge and also the significance of the, the Camino patch and things like that. That's all really cool. Yeah. When this is the first episode, I, I don't have anything like legal to say about it. But the, the last scene, the, the one that sparked all the, the sort of chatter over the weekend uh, where Moff Gideon is brought the news about the, the tracking device on the Razor Crest and he's in this like mysterious looking room 
with some things along the wall, some sort of figures or droids or something like that. And so there's all sorts of speculation. And a friend of mine told me, uh, without spoiling anything, to just turn on the audio track that includes an, uh, an audio description of what's happening. So it's like mm-hmm. for, for visually impaired viewers or blind viewers. And it's, it's almost, for lack of a better description, like an audio book playing out. So you still hear the, the, the um, words being spoken by the, uh, the characters, but it's a narration of what they're doing on screen. And so there wasn't really any detail about the badge, but at the end for that scene, it said that those were dark troopers, which is a call. I mean, dark troopers have been around in the EU since the nineties when they were in a couple of star Wars video games and were sort of a fixture in different books and comics and stuff. But, the first time I'd ever turned it on that feature on, but it was really, it was kind of a neat way to watch a scene like that. I don't know. Yeah, that's really cool. Like who would have ever thought that that would be the thing that would confirm it? (laughs) I mean, there is, I I saw that online too. And there is speculation that it's either just dark troopers capitalized Mm -hmm. um, or, I mean, they are black stormtrooper out like you know trooper yeah. outfits so it could be just lowercase dark troopers dark troopers um, yeah so but it's it's too much of a of an eu word for it not to be um but we'll see how moff gideon's plan comes together yeah i generally hate speculation because that's the best way to lead to disappointment or like radically long guesses so i'll phrase it as a question of what's Gideon's plan? Does he want to be a force user? Does he want to make stormtroopers who are force users of some kind? What's the play here? Like what's, what, what are they trying to make where they're doing human experiments with midichlorians and they're not going well? So what's, what's the plan? And that's why I think this is, that's part of the reason why I think Gideon is part of something far larger and more significant that we can't see fully now, because uh, not not to get into deep analysis or anything, but like you don't bring in a character like Ahsoka, which I think she's going to come in next episode. Uh, you don't bring in somebody like her with the risks involved and, and sort of the, the, you know, level to which that character has gotten in the fandom just to play like some minor bit play role to, to, to sort of advance some small part of the storyline. There, there's got to be a bigger reason that she's involved. So there's a lot of balls up in the air. Like we're halfway through this season and you've got Boba Fett, presumably if that's who it was we saw earlier, you've got that storyline open. You've got the child, you've got Bo-Katan who's probably going to come back, whatever's going on with Gideon. I think it's going to be one big cliffhanger. <laughs> in December. Yeah. And the other, again, questions, not expecting answers, but it's like, my questions are, will we see Sabine? Will we see Ezra Bridger? Because if if Ezra's back, did that mean Thrawn get back? So, you know, questions there. Will Ahsoka have met Luke by now? And if so, will there at least be a name drop uh, about, you know, Master Skywalker? So there's all kinds of ways that this could go. Part of me is is really hoping that 
the the uh, speculation about uh, uh, Dawson is just speculation, and that we see uh, Ashley Eckstein as Ahsoka. That's you know the fact that we were able to see Katie Sarakoff as Bo-Katan. You know was was a animated voice becoming live action. I don't think the original voice actor for Saw Guerrera made it into the film. So um, that would just, again, that's wish fulfillment. I don't know if she does any, anything beyond voice acting, but again, just things that I wonder about. Yeah, I, I am holding to the theory that whatever uh, Moff Gideon's plan is, that the, the idea is to use Mandalorian to kind of, if not explain everything of the sequel trilogy to start kind of filling in some gaps and kind of setting the stage um, for the sequel trilogy, um, especially given that it's in the hands of Dave Filoni, who um, can kind of do a good job of taking this kind of however you feel about the sequel trilogy, that storyline and kind of carving it into the deeper Star Wars lore. Um, and pulling on these threads of EU stuff and, and pulling kind of everything together so it, it makes sense. Um, and I think what you, because really, I, I think the biggest question coming into the sequel trilogy is how we get the first order, right? The, the empire's destroyed, we get the new Republic. How do we go from having the new Republic, everybody's celebrating um, and suddenly we have the first order popping up they have a star killer base they're destroying planets again like how does that happen and i think that's what we're going to start to see with this kind of shadow organization that they regardless of the palpatine storyline that that these with any and i and, and i think it's it's very realistic that any sort of power you know doesn't really die it goes into the shadows. It's never, if it's never fully eradicated, it goes into the shadows. It kind of builds up power again, and then it'll come back as something different, as something, you know, kind of mo modified from its original plan. Um, so I think that's ultimately what you're going to see. Maybe not fully this season, but that's kind of the general arc for the Mandalorian. Lucasfilm, if you're listening, hire Gabby. <laughs> Put her on the story team. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm actually okay if it's not connected. So like I'm okay if it's a completely independent story. Mm -hmm. I also will, will postulate that we know that the First Order did arise from ashes of the Empire. Mm -hmm. We also know that a quarter of the Imperial fleet was left unaccounted for. So that could still go in a couple different directions. And it's entirely plausible that the First Order did arise out of Gideon's handiwork. Uh, but I think we'll, again, let's see what happens in five weeks with the answers that we have uh, by then. And to me, that was, that was the most important part. I mean, my favorite part of Rogue One was this kind of bridging of different storylines um, and I think you don't have to go full fan service to kind of just bridge those gaps and, and kind of tie things together um, in a way that makes it this small, this large galaxy, very small, you know, that all these parts are kind of intertwined. So 
I don't know. That's just my my little wish. Well, you know, it is we're at the precipice of Thanksgiving, so you know, <laughs> maybe it'll be a Thanksgiving miracle for you. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I, I, I do believe we are getting Ahsoka in the next episode because I've seen online that the next episode is entitled The Jedi. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the speculation according to some, one of those weird like audio description things um, that the episode is entitled The Jedi. So it's Filoni's episodes. That would make sense. <laughs> yeah, it would. Again, like as we thought about last year, it's like if Ahsoka's coming in, Filoni will be the guy to direct it because that'd be really, really bad. Like, nah, I'm taking this one, Dave. Like, that would. <laughs> giving it to the new guy. Like, that would just not go <laughs> well. I mean, you uh, don't want to see Robert Rodriguez direct that? That's the episode I'm looking forward to, the Robert yeah. Rodriguez episode. That's going to be awesome. Wow. <laughs> um, and for the record, I just want to say, I did like Carl uh, Weathers directing of this. Yeah, he was. It was. I hope they give him some more stuff in the future. Again, very long career in Hollywood. You know, he's done action movies before. He, the the fight was good. Just as I was thinking about it, Bryce Dallas Howard can direct a great fight scene as well. So, um, I, I that should not be overlooked. Of like, hey. Not more than competent storytelling. It's how did you do the fight in this action TV show? And they did it well. So, so with that, everyone, be grateful for The Mandalorian. And we'll be back next week, probably nerding out. Uh, you know, one of, there's at least one legal geek who said she wants light, the Ahsoka lightsabers for Christmas. And, um, yeah, uh, you, you know, Bethany. So yeah, she said she said there's nothing I want more. So I was like, okay. So that's uh it's good stuff. It's good stuff. So with that, everyone, thank you for tuning in. Please leave a review and stay healthy, stay safe. And this is the thing. <laughs>